want to talk a little bit more about Egypt, that wonderful magical land, land of the pharaohs. The mythology of Egypt at some levels can be quite confusing and perhaps if any of you have picked up any books on Egyptian mythology you'll wonder how they can have such a vast group of gods and goddesses which all seem to be depicted in slightly different forms and all jumbled up together. Well the Egyptians were quite an interesting people. First of all they had a lot of tolerance for other people's views and beliefs so into the Egyptian mythology became incorporated all sorts of different ideas. And also, of course, Egypt as a civilization lasted for at least 3,000 years. And it was, at one level, a fairly stable civilization. It had its ups and downs and its times when Egyptian power was, was very strong and at times when the, uh, the, there were invasions in Egypt. But the general populace and the general concept of the idea was a fairly stable civilization. So as you can imagine, over a period of 3,000 years, quite a lot of new ideas crept in and certain modifications came in and different approaches or different areas of looking at these principles came to the fore. So this is, is one of the reasons why there is a certain amount of, uh, not confusion, but while, why there is this wide variety of different perspectives. Now the, the Egyptian, the main mythologies of Egypt arose from certain what was called cult centers and there were a number of these and they were associated with different divine gods perhaps the most famous one of all is the one which came from Heliopolis which is now a part of Cairo they gave rise to the Osiris myths and it's the Osiris myths which I want to talk in a little bit more detail about as, as we go on but there were a number of other cos cosmologies from, from ancient Egypt and they were usually based upon a, a triad of, of, of gods so the, the triads were important. Another one was Hermophilus and this gave rise to the triad of, of the great god Tar and in that triad there was Tar, a god called Shu and Tefnut. And this was from the cult centre of Hermopolis. And this, this question of the, the, the triads, as, as I've said, is found in, in, a, in a number of these, these cult centres. Heliopolis. This was the, the main cult centre with the Osiris myth. Now the came from Memphis. And Memphis is, is a place not far from the... Uh, it's south of Cairo not far from the, where the pyramids are. And there was a, it's one of the, the very oldest of the ancient Egyptian centers. And their great god was Tar. And he was the, he was the sort of creator and builder of, of the universe. And his consort was Sekhmet. And they had a son, which was Nefertum. Now the symbols actually are very, are very similar in a way to the Heliopolis mythologies um, and one will see this, this linking of ideas uh, occurring between some of the, the myths of Egypt. We're looking at certain principles which are universal and they're beaming down on the planet and from these, these principles 
man starts to become aware of the essence and then starts to create the gods in the form which he can appreciate and understand. And depending upon the priesthood, the understanding, the group, so will the, there will be slight variations and slight different patterns about the two. Tar is very similar in some ways to the, the Osiris figure. He was depicted as, as a man, stood upright. Some of the Egyptian gods and goddesses have animal forms, and we would look at those, but some were shown as ordinary human beings. Tar was shown as, as a human being. He was the great architect of the, the universe. And his consort was Sekhmet, which was the lioness. And the lioness we talked about yesterday was an aspect of Hathor, who appears very strongly in the Osiris myth. And the Fertum, his symbol was the lotus. And the lotus, again, was associated with one of the, the gods and the goddesses of Heliopolis. So there was quite a strong link between the two. Now, there's, there's another cult centre, Hermophilus. Now, this was sacred to, to the god Toph. And in this group, there were eight gods. It was an obdode, actually, of, of gods and goddesses. And this is where we get the number eight cropping up a, a, again. There was another famous one, which was uh, came from Thebes. Thebes is the modern Luxor. Now, from Thebes, we have um, another group of Amun, Mut, and Khonshu. Again, we have this, this triad form. Now, Amun was a god which achieved prominence during a certain period of, of Egyptian, the Egyptian dynastic life, when Thebes was, became the real centre and capital uh, of Egypt. And you talked about the pharaoh Akhenaten. Well, he, he came to power in the, the 14th dynasty at a, the time when Amun was then the chief god uh, of Egypt. And one of the, the things which Akhenaten tried to do, because the priesthood at the time had got to a stage where they were presenting concepts and ideas which tended to subjugate people's way of perceiving truth. Uh, and the pharaoh Akhenaten tried to break completely with the mould of, of, of that tradition and to establish a new, a new concept and a new idea. And certainly as a religious individual, or religious teacher, he was, in my perception, a, a very advanced soul. And it takes a lot of courage, really, to, to throw out 2,000 years of tradition and history straight out the door and say we're going to set up with something new, which is effectively what he did. Because not only did he break with the old traditions of looking at the gods and the goddesses, but he also broke the traditions of, in an artistic form and created uh, a much more naturalistic approach to art, which unfortunately didn't last very long. Very, you, you probably have um, seen pictures of, of Egypt and so forth. The art there was very formal. If you actually look at it, um, you, you will see that the way people were drawn was, was often with one foot behind the other, shoulders square on like this, you see, in a form which you couldn't ever really have in a naturalistic sense uh, and the, the, the gods would, would or the individuals would be, be then looking in a straight line but the, the shoulders were always squared onto the 
to the person. And this was the way they, they stylized their whole painting and, and reduced sculpturing. Well, Arkhanathan decided to, that this was all wrong and to have a much more naturalistic concept. So, but he, unfortunately, didn't last very long. And he tried to introduce the concept of the one god, but this was not successful, and he was eventually murdered by the, uh, by the priesthood, uh, who then reverted back to the old uh, traditions, and Amun once more assumed great prominence. Now, they were the, they were the main four cosmologies of, of ancient Egypt, which is the Heliopolitan, the Memphis one, the Theban one, and the Hermophilus one, which was associated with, with Toth. Now I'd like to just go back and look at the Egyptian um, Heliopolitan mythology, because this is the one which I think seems to me to have the most coherence and the most relevance to what we're, we're discussing this afternoon. In a sense, you see, as one looks back and tries to appreciate and understand these mythologies, as I've talked about before, some of them have a greater sense of power or a greater sense of linking through to a more pure essence of these spiritual forces as they're, as they're manifesting. And it seems to me that we have a strong link from the Heliopolitan mythologies, perhaps back to Atlantis, and perhaps back to an understanding of these spiritual forces at quite a high level. We were also sort of talking uh, about an introduction of a new mythology, and this is something which I'd like to toss out to you in a way, that what is going to be the mythology of the 20th century? What are we actually going to be introducing? How are we going to depict these principles in a way which ordinary people can link through to them? Now maybe it will be a combination of taking aspects from different myths, but maybe also we will create something new. So this is another interesting aspect on all this. But in the, the Heliopolitan mythology, the supreme god was Ra. And in a sense, this, he represented the, the, the godhead, if you like, the, the supreme creative force which, from which all else manifested. And one of the forms which he actually took was, was another god, Atom. Now, Atom, also in, in a creation sense, he gave birth to two, two principles, and this is, in a sense, links with our tree of life in the Kabbalah. It's two gods, Shu, and Tefnut. One represented the life principle, and the other represented order. Now from these, these, these two combined came two more uh, gods and goddesses, which actually form the basis of the present age. One of which is a god called Geb, and the other is Nut. Here we're, we're actually looking at a sort of stepping down of, of the principles onto a, a slightly lower level, a level which people can begin to appreciate and understand. 
Geb and Nut, one represented, Geb represented the earth, and Nut represented the sky. Um, we, we have, in a sense, an echo here of the, the yin and yang concepts of the mother earth and the, the yang, the father sky in the Chinese mythology, the combination of the two. And it's from these two sprang the, the gods and goddesses which formed the uh, Osiris myth. Now from this union, that, and this again is, is where one gets a certain amount of confusion crops up, but from this union, the Osiris myth, there were supposed to be five gods were born. There was Osiris himself, Isis, Nephthys, Set, and Horus. Now in this form, he was known as Horus the Elder. Because also, in the mythologies we go on, you'll see that Isis and Osiris um, came together, and from then a son was born, which was, was also called Horus. So we have a, almost another aspect of that same form taking place. Now Ra Atom, or Ra, was then still the supreme god, and this was known in the ancient Egyptians as the Golden Age, the age when men and gods walked together and there was peace and prosperity on the earth. It was known as the sort of first of time. But as the story goes on, Ra eventually started to become old and decrepit. If you can imagine in the mythology a god becoming old and decrepit, but as they described it, this is what actually happened. And in the myth as it goes, the, the ordinary people who have been created, once they recognise that this pattern was no longer strong and as powerful as it had once been, they started to then turn against the gods. So Ra became angry at this, and he sent one of his eyes in the form of the goddess Hathor, who assumed the form of the lioness, down to subjugate mankind. And as the, the, as the mythology actually uh, goes, this, this goddess started to, to wreak havoc upon mankind. And it was only by Ra creating some wine and pouring it on the ground, which Sekhmet then, or Hathor, drank avidly, thinking it was uh, blood, and became drunk, that mankind was spared total destruction. And in a sense, I think this part of the mythology is relating to the destruction of, of Atlantis. Because we have the same images or aspects cropping up with our association with, with Athene, where she then created these, these terrible creatures, the Gorgons. In a sense, the same archetype somehow is caught up with a period of time when Atlantis sank and when the, uh, a destruction took place with, with much of, of mankind. And it was said that after that time, the gods then withdrew from close contact with Earth. This again is, is something which perhaps we're experiencing now, that the gods are withdrawn and they're not, as also is talked about in the Greek mythology, where men and gods walk together on the Earth, that moment of separation took place at that time. And then assume the 
the control of the earth or the impulses, the main impulses coming down onto the earth came from then eight gods. And to this number were, were added two more. We have Osiris, Isis, Horus, Hathor, Set, Nephthys, Toth, and Anubis. Now Osiris, after this moment in time, assumed control of the kingdom. And he represents a sort of wise king figure. And it's said in the mythology that he ruled the kingdom in a, in a very beneficent way, bringing to mankind an understanding of uh, agriculture, civilization, and things of that nature. His consort was Isis, and she was the great mother goddess. At this moment in time, Horus, as I said, was still one of the, the main gods who had been created by Igeb and Nut. Hathor, who appeared then in the myths, um, is eventually married to, Hathor, uh, to Horus, but she was uh, a goddess which was in existence at the same time as the, the previous uh, Geban Nut. She appeared in the, in the mythologies, perhaps coming from, from a, an, an older time, but it was not actually sort of created in the same, uh, at the same moment as, as the Isis and Osiris. Set was the brother of, of, of Osiris. Uh, Nephthys was married to Set, so these two were joined together. And the fruit of their, their union, or one of the offspring of Nephthys, was, was Anubis. And Toth was, in this, this period, he was the uh, grand vizier in the... In the pantheon or in the group. Now, as the mythology goes on, Osiris, having ruled for, for a period of time um, and brought a lot of benefit to mankind, eventually decides to go off on a, on a journey to bring civilization to different parts. The Egyptians weren't necessarily thinking that it was only Egypt which should have the results of their uh, wonderful civilization. So in the myth, Osiris goes to bring civilization to the rest of, uh, of the world. And he left Isis to hold the control of the, the kingdom. Now when he, while he was away, his brother Set started to plot with some others to overthrow him. And when he returned, Set said, well, let's hold a great banquet for, uh, for the king for his return. Uh, and which he did, and he called together all the courtiers from different parts of the of the kingdom, and uh, they held this wonderful banquet. And in the story, the way the uh, set actually created a large coffin, and when they had the uh, the feast, he said to to Osiris, "This coffin is is a present or a gift for." the person it fits. So one by one the various courtiers got into the coffin and, uh, and laid down and sure enough it was either too big or too small for them. And then eventually he inveigled Osiris to, to lie in this coffin, which he did. And of course he had had it made specially for Osiris's 
size. And as soon as he lay down in the coffin, he nailed it up, set nailed it up, and threw it into the Nile. And he then took control of the whole kingdom of, of Egypt. Now Isis was completely distressed by this, and so she went out in search for the coffin. And eventually she discovered Osiris and was able to rescue him. But before she could really bring him back to life, Set discovered them again, and this time he cut Osiris up into 14 parts, which he scattered throughout the world. And this again is perhaps an interesting concept or mythology about the, this impulse being split and set in different places of the world. Now Isis then went in search of the different parts of, of, of Osiris and managed to, to again reassemble them and carried out what was termed the first embalming rites. But from that moment on it was brought back new life into Osiris. And the way, um, one of the ways Isis was able to do this was that she tricked Ra into giving her his magical name. And there's something very interesting in the word of, of names and so forth. And if you look in, in a lot of traditions, the use of sound and one's name was held to be something which was quite sacred. And the magical name with which one was given had to be kept only unto yourself. So... Isis, in tricking Ra in this, was able to actually draw the power of Ra. And she used this power to actually bring back life to Osiris, who at that moment then said he was only going to rule from the, from the other world rather than being in close contact with the earth. And he bequeathed then to to the planet or, or to, to Egypt uh, his son to rule in his stead who was Horus and from that moment on ensued a battle between Set and Horus to, to regain control of this kingdom and the other gods and goddesses all tended to side with Horus but Set in his machinations was able to still retain control of the kingdom. Nephthys, as she appeared in the, the mythology, as I said, was originally married to Set, but she then felt uh, she could no longer side with him, so she then started to work in conjunction with the uh, other gods and goddesses. And it was eventually decided that Set should be overthrown, and eventually Horus was able to, to regain control of the kingdom. In some ways, as, as I see this mythology, we're looking at something which is still taking place now. This question of this new impulse or new idea coming in. Perhaps we'll just look at some of the, the aspects of these the myths. Osiris, as I said, represents the, the supreme father, philosopher, king figure. One of his symbols is the backbone. And in a sense, if one looks at it from a chakra point of view, I would associate him with the crown chakra. This aspect of oneself which is linked through to the spiritual side of one's being. Now maybe perhaps 
part of the mythology is saying that this side of, of man's nature has become sundered from his more conscious part. This question of man's seeking for the spiritual side of him is very, very important. And yet it is something which lies dormant in so many individuals. We really do need to awaken up this spiritual aspect within. But maybe because of what has happened, we have this, this split which has meant that the, it is not easy to make contact with that father spiritual force as it manifests within us. Now Isis remained here on the, on the planet in close contact with the planet. And she represents the, the divine mother aspect. And she acted as a, as a paraclete or a go-between between mankind and Osiris. Now Osiris, almost the, the same story has been enacted out in the life of Christ. Because Christ came as, as a teacher and yet was sacrificed by those around him. Now Isis carries the real love vibration. She is the, the divine mother influence as it has, has come through uh, onto the, the planet. And in a sense, you see, through this, this mythology, it is this link with, with Osiris, as it's talked about. Um, it is only through awakening this love side of oneself that perhaps one can begin to make contact with the real spiritual you. One of the things which is often has been said, unless you can love yourself, how can you love another? And perhaps one of the first steps is beginning to learn to love oneself on many levels, to reawaken the spiritual side of one's being. <coughs>